Thank you, Chuck. Well, if you're new, you might be wondering why is the pastor wearing a bow tie? If you're not new, you might be asking that yourself. It's the same question. But uh, if you could see the, my slide, the name of our message today is Waiters and Waitresses. So I decided to uh, put the roll on like this. So I you're going to, hopefully, you'll remember, there was one time pastor wore a bow tie. What was that about? Ah, oh, waiters and waitresses. I spent a lot of time in my life actually being a waiter. Six, seven years I was a waiter uh, and um, helped pay for my college. And at some point, I became like a manager of waiters and waitresses. And uh, so I got a background in that, you know. And so I put this on just to give you a visual idea, and it's going to be part of the message as I go through this. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to study about something that happened in the church. As you can see on the slide, it says, It is not right for us to wait on tables. So it's actually right there in Scripture. A waiter. And we're going to drive out what was the writer there, Luke, uh, talking about when he used that word. So... Acts chapter 6, if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read our section of scripture and then we'll get into the study. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, I just pray that as we um, study your word today, that you would teach, correct, shape and form within us truth on this particular subject that we would see it grow in our church and we would give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Now, a lot of times when I'm approaching a sermon, I think, how can I teach this in a way that's easy to grab onto? I always know someone sitting out there that hasn't been in church very long. And so this is usually my approach. And as I go through the message, there's always going to be moments where um, I'm going to talk at, at maybe a higher hanging fruit than a lower hanging fruit. But let me just give it to you, the big idea right now in the beginning. There was a point in time when there was no Department of the Homeland Security. There wasn't. It came into existence because something happened. You know what that is, right? September 11th. September 11th, terrorist attacks. We're all familiar with this. The planes, they hit the building, the buildings that fell. 
And as a result of that, <clears throat> there was the creation of a new office. So something happened, and after that, there was a quick response for change. In fact, in 2002, President Bush signed the Homeland Security Act, leading to the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. So before that, it didn't exist. That doesn't mean that that everything was brand new that came into that. They weaved together some things that already existed, but there certainly wasn't a building, and there certainly wasn't a logo like that. It came into being because of 9-11, and there was a quick response. However, over time, like today, if you go to Department of Homeland Security, it's much more well-established, it's much more well-formed than on the very day that Bush signed that. And so there's a quick response because something happened, but then later you can see that it is a, f more, a more formalized response unfolds. In 2003, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, a national effort to safeguard the U.S. against terrorism. It was an overhaul of the nation's security, intelligence, and emergency response Systems. Now, you might be saying, well, what, all, what does all this have to do with Act, Act 6? Well, it's an illustration. Because in Acts chapter 6, something happened. That's the first thing. What happened? There was a dispute that threatened the unity of the church. What was that? Widows were being neglected for distribution. Now, 9-11 was a threat to safety and security to the country. Acts chapter 6, what happened? Something rose up, a dispute between two groups, the Hellenists, and they're complaining about the, the, the Jewish widows seem to be getting their distribution. How come we're not? There's, there's some type of racial tension in there as well, two different groups threatening the unity of the church. So there's a quick response. We're going to look at that in Acts chapter 6. What was the quick response for change? I read it. I'm going to go back and look at it, but it was the seven. That's what he called them, the seven. It was just the, a number. This is the seven that we've chosen. They said, find some men with good reputation. That's going to be our response. The immediate response was to, to get a group that can mobilize and meet the need, that can boots on the ground and help solve the problem. So there was a quick response. However, over time, you're going to see there's a more formalized response to that type of problem in the church. Later on, in the New Testament, when you go to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy is one of the last letters that Paul wrote, and when he's writing, at that time, the church has gone global. The church is all over the, the different continents, and, and in that letter, he's giving instructions that really deal with a more formalized approach to how do you organize church. And in that, you see two official offices that should exist in churches. One is a leadership role, elders, pastors. The word bishop, all three of those words describe the same office, but they're emphasizing a different function of the office. It's the same office. A pastor is the same as an elder, is the same as a bishop. Every time they're used in the New Testament, it's the same office. But each one tells you something about its function. An elder uh, counseling, helping give oversight. Bishop is overseer. It's I'm looking at 
all, everyone in the church and making sure that all the ministries are running. Pastor is shepherd. A shepherd is with the people counseling and ministering. And there's a way in which a pastor is an elder, is a bishop. They're all the same. But coming alongside that in 1 Timothy, you also see another office. And that office is that of, and I'll use the word, deacon. Although I don't like to use that word because in our modern day culture, we don't really use that word. If you come up to somebody who doesn't go to church, they don't know anything about church, and you say, do you know what a deacon is? They're not going to, who knows? Where is a deacon in the world? Besides Wake Forest demon deacons, you know, that's their, their mascot, you know. But uh, the word deacon means serve and minister. So over time, I've utilized that. At least if you say there's this position, it's called servant minister. You've at least communicated something to them. Oh, I, I bet that's a person who serves and ministers. Yes, <laughs> you're right. You got that right. Now, here at our church, we have some other positions. We have uh, children's, youth, ministry, director. We have secretary. We have uh, office manager, none of which exist in the Bible. Paul didn't write to Timothy and tell him, make sure you got a church secretary and make sure here's the qualifications for that church secretary. They got to type this much in a minute. He wouldn't have said that, but you get what I'm saying. There's only two offices that God gave to the church that every church must have. If it does not, it will not function properly. It's like losing an organ. It, you're going to have problems. Unless it's the spleen. I don't know what that does. But Am I right in that? There's one that we don't know. Anyways, tangent. And so what you see is a more formalized response later on, just like that illustration. Something happened. There was a quick response to help meet that immediate need, but over time, they were able to sharpen it and formalize it more. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. In this chapter 6 of Acts, you're going to see, I've often said this is a prototype. He does not use the word deacon. He doesn't. If Later, we're going to read in 1 Timothy. You're going to see the word deacon. But here, he uses a different word. But I think this is a prototype. A prototype is like, you know, the, the, the first, um, first time you're putting it out, we're going to fine-tune it. We're going to make it better. We learn from it. We need that immediate response. So we're going to create this position, the seven, but I don't think that they're as formalized as Paul is later in the New Testament when he says these are two offices that work side by side in ministry. So I want to look at this Acts 6 prototype, and here's a few things that we learn from it. Number one, church growth creates problems to figure out, okay? Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint arose, right? You see that increasing in number? All through Acts, the church is growing. Now, this is only chapter 6, but already there's been a sermon preached and 2,000 people joined the church. In the next chapter, a sermon is preached, 1,000 people joined the church. Sometimes it says a great number joined the church. One time it says there were so many people that joined, it was an uncountable number. 
I mean, just imagine, just take the first hard numbers, three or two and one, 3,000 people. If 3,000 people joined our church, what kind of problems would we have? Number one, we can't all fit into two services. I mean, that's just a reality. We got to do something different. When a church grows, it creates challenges to deal with that growth. The increase in need for the kinds of ministry that will, will be, have to be met in that increase of people. Now, I put their 150 rule because centralized ministry works when you're a smaller church. The vast majority of churches in the world are small. Almost all the churches in the world are 100 people or less. And it's known that pastors of churches can be effective in ministry, personal ministry, where I know you, I know your family, I know the kinds of challenges and needs you have, and I'm like a shepherd with the sheep trying to help meet those needs. A pastor can do that effectively up to around 150. Really good, maybe 200. You got a church of 400, that pastor's gonna die trying to meet every need in that church. A mega church of thousands, there's no way. And here in Acts chapter 6, this church is growing fast. There's thousands. And who are the leaders? Do you know who the leaders are? The 12. The men that Christ had poured his life into. Peter. All those disciples. And they can't meet all the needs, the personal needs. There has to be some type of organization underneath them to meet needs. I mean, the complaint that rose, what was the complaint about? We're not getting fed spiritually. We're not teaching good enough. The complaint had to do with daily distributions for widows. Somehow, there were women that needed something, whether it's food or some type of ministry, where every day they came to check on them and make sure they had what they needed. And it had grown so large that people were getting lost between the cracks. So when a church grows larger, it creates these kinds of challenges. You see it right from the very beginning. My belief and amazement is how God records these things in the Bible for us to learn from because what I'm telling you is true even today. It's true today. But we see uh, that church growth creates problems to figure out, but also, in this prototype example, we see that the priority responsibility of leaders is recognized. It's publicly stated and publicly recognized and recorded for all time in the Bible. And what is that priority? The priority of the church leader, the pastor, the elder, here the apostles, is prayer and the ministry of the word. Ministry of the Word can be teaching, it can be preaching, but it can also be coming alongside people and taking the Word of God and applying it to the situation of their life. A counseling, for example, could be doing that. Meeting in smaller groups with people where they can take God's Word and give it to them in a way that's palatable and applicable to what's going on in their life. Now, <clears throat> they gathered together. It says, everybody, the full number of the disciples, and said, it is not right 
that we should give up preaching the word of God, and there it is, to serve tables. How interesting that the Bible borrows a word from restaurants. What is a waiter? That's why I put my bow tie on today. I want you to forever remember this message about waiters. A waiter comes to the table and says, how are you? I'm so glad you're here. And there's a way in which they're very welcoming and they're getting to know them at the table. And what are your needs? You're hungry? Can I bring you some water? Let me give you a menu. You select. And then they go over here and they, they get something and they bring it back and they're helping meet their needs. I mean, the context of a restaurant is specifically food, okay? But they're borrowing that word. And they're saying, we need people in the church who are designated to be able to come alongside people and be welcoming and get to know them, what are your needs, to come over here and get what they might need and then to bring it to them. Could be even friendship, counseling, encouragement, exhortation. It could be physical needs. It could be a number of things. But in this moment, what you're seeing is those leaders are saying, it's not right that I take the primary role that God gives me and put it over here to come to a table and try to do that. That means I'm not a good leader of the church. It does not say that they can't, because they can. Again, if you're a pastor of a small church, you probably have more time to come to, the, to that moment and meet those needs. They can, but what they can't do is forsake a primary responsibility to do that. They must prioritize. Now, the other thing we see in this Acts 6 prototype is church leaders drive the process for solution. Because it says, first of all, they gather everyone together, then they tell them what to do. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. He makes a distinction. In other words, we need a group who can, can do this job, but we are going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So he makes that, that distinction. And I love that it. it's a public declaration. It's known, it's clarified, and recorded in Scripture. And then, to further lead the process, go, find. They give them description, boundaries. Find guys that have good reputations, right? And there's a way in which they're working together to solve the problem, but the leaders are leading. Don't overlook that. The leaders are coming and saying, here's what we're going to do, but we need your help. Because, you know, here's the reality. I don't know everybody in the way that you might know somebody. You might know somebody who has great character, who also you've seen them do ministry. I've seen the way you're helpful. I've seen the way you, you went to that person's house and you, you helped them with something. They can see them already doing the types of things we need people to do, and they have a good reputation. And then they can bring that name forward. They bring seven Names forward, okay? They bring those names forward. And I think I put here, what does the process look like? And 
I put the word elder. It's elder-led or it's pastor-led. Here it's apostle-led. But this is how they solve the, the problems. Observation and recognition. So obviously, just like I said, you guys observe, you see. The, the, the total body collectively is going to see a lot more than just my eyeballs. So observe. And then let's recognize and bring those names forward, he says. It's based on character, obviously. Now here, it's, it's smaller than later when it's more formalized. When it's more formalized in the letter to Timothy, we're going to look at that. There's a lot more that he says about the quality uh, and um, um, qualifications to serve in that role. Here, men of good repute, men of good reputation based on character, but also the ability to waiter. You can't overlook that. You could be a person that has a great character, but maybe you're not very good at being a waiter. I mean, look, I, I told you in the beginning, I was a waiter. I became a manager of waiters and waitresses. Sometimes in a summer, we had 60 to 75 that I was over that I would manage. And I'm just going to tell you, some of them were not good at their job. And some of them we had to move out where they couldn't be serving in that role anymore. They weren't good at that. So it's not just men of good, good quality in terms of character, like integrity, they're truthful, but also they got to have an ability to be able to come alongside people and do the job. So those things go together. Notice they don't take a church vote. Sometimes in churches, the congregation's leading the leaders. And I grade against that when I teach. I see in Scripture that God calls leaders to lead. And good leaders include, like they do here in chapter 6, they're not dictators, but they include the congregation. They come to a solution together. Here's what we need you to do. Then they come back and they evaluate. They brought seven men. What if they brought a man forward It was like, oh, wait. Because sometimes leaders might be involved in, in counseling situations. Maybe they know something that the congregation doesn't know. And maybe they brought someone forward. This one's not going to work. But in this case, they're all good. There's an affirming of that. Like to me, a biblical way to come to these solutions is the leaders lead. They put it out there and the congregation works together with them. And there's a joint affirmation when we install leaders into positions of the church. I think it's an immensely detrimental thing to have the context of vote and a congregation vote in a way that is the opposite of the way the leaders are leading. That's not a good sign for a church. Acts 6 is a great example. Now, we've got apostles. You see them bringing alongside them prototype office. But from that point to 1 Timothy, just like I, something happened, Bush signed something, but later on it's more formalized. Something happened, dispute, quick response. How do we, when we get to 1 Timothy, do you know, how, you know what's changed? First of all, apostles are not going to live forever. Those guys that Jesus invested in, who are leading the church, won't live forever. Apostles are a one-generation thing. They're foundational to the church. But what they begin to do is say 
like Paul says to Timothy, because the church explodes. It goes global. How can those 12 guys be global and run every church everywhere? They cannot. See, in Jerusalem, it's more centralized, one church in one location. But when it goes global, there's the language they begin to use, is, and this is what Paul says to, to, to Timothy, appoint in those churches elders. And that's where we get that other term. Elders could, like I said, pastor, bishop, those are interchangeable words they use in the New Testament. But it's a singular office with different functions. But he says, appoint them. And I'm, I want you to catch this. Every time the word elders used in the New Testament, it is always in the plural. It's my belief as a pastor that churches are to be led with a plurality, not a singular. There's not a senior pastor in the New Testament. We say, but well, we have senior pastors. Yeah, you could say I'm a senior pastor but the only place in the New Testament it uses the word senior pastor, it gives the title to Jesus. I'm not going to take that from him. They call Jesus chief shepherd. That's senior pastor. The word for pastor is shepherd. Poimeneo, to shepherd. The chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. So there's a way in which, and I like how Alexander Strzok and others in modern times, they, they use the word first among equals. You do have one leader. The, the, the pastor who's preaching is usually the point leader of a plurality, but you have to have a plurality. At our church, we have a plurality. I'll come back to that in a second. But in the First Timothy passage, you have two offices. Two offices. Elders and servant ministers. So as that church went global, they appointed Elders in every church, a plurality. They put them into leadership positions, but that's not the only thing. Paul writes to Timothy, and in Timothy, the letter to, <coughs> excuse me, to Timothy, you see these two offices together side by side, and each has a different purpose and a different function, a different role within the body of Christ. They must both be present, and they must go hand in hand serving alongside closely with each other. He gives qualifications for elders and also servant ministers. We're not going to look at the elders because I'm primarily talking about waiters today. But, and here's an interesting thought. In Acts chapter 6, when he says it's not fair that we should wait on tables, give up God's word to wait on tables, that word there for wait... It's an infinitive form of the word that you're going to find right now in Timothy, deacon or servant minister. So in a way, in the prototype, he was already pointing forward, there needs to be someone alongside us in our role to teach and preach who can serve and minister the body of Christ. Now here in 1 Timothy, he's going to give you qualifications. Now I put them up on a slide and I just want to take a moment to recognize them, because one of my hopes is, is that someone is sitting out here and you're feeling God calling you to serve in a role in our church in this way. Now, there was a time where we gathered people together and we went through this little booklet. This is called um, Servant Ministers of Bayview Church, an application of 1 Timothy right here. And I just pulled it out because we're going to use this again, but it, it gives a, a good definition. I'm going to only give you 
sentences of each of these. But let's look at them. Dignified. Dignified means that they, are, they have a seriousness about them. Because the work of serving in ministry, serving and ministering to people, fundamentally has eternal significance. And you can't be too nonchalant about that. There is a man out there who is so goofy, they undermine that, the seriousness of that eternal significance. There's a time to be funny or even goofy, but there's a time not to be. Dignified is a word that says that man can discern between those times. Some of you know I coach at Harvest Boys High School Soccer. We had an incident this week where there was a man who uh, committed a crime, got lost. Police didn't know where they were. That man found his way to the Harvest Soccer Field and committed suicide on the field. I got a message. says, Coach, uh, I, uh, first time ever as a coach, I got a message like this. Coach, there's a dead body on your soccer field you're not going to be able to use the field. Well, when I got those boys together, because they went into lockdown, the guy had a gun, they went into lockdown, but everything was okay in the end. But when I finally gathered them together, you know, I knew I'm going to have to address this right away. Because maybe there's a kid that's, that was a traumatic thing. But as we kind of gathered in a huddle, there was, a, there was one player who made jokes about it. And, I, and even in my mind, I was thinking, there's a joke in here, I could tell. You know, we're about to play a team, you know, I could make a joke. But I didn't. And when the player did, you could tell a mixed reaction. Some of the boys weren't sure if they should laugh at something like that. And I just said, hey, guys, listen, there's a couple families that are really seriously affected by that. We shouldn't make light of it. Let's, let's pray about it. Let's pray for those families. And we just kind of spent a moment where we prayed about it. And I asked if there's anyone. And you see, the difference there is there's moments where it's, it's not appropriate. You need to be dignified. You need to understand sometimes when you're doing ministry with people and discern those moments. Now, that's one, dignified. He says he cannot be double-tongued. Now, this word here <clears throat> means to be consistently honest and forthright. But you might... Look at that and go, it means don't lie. It means don't, don't just say something that's not true. But it's broader than that, okay? The term plainly prohibits any kind of manipulative, insincere, or deceitful speech. And some people are good at manipulating situations to favor an outcome they want. And Paul's saying... Don't be double-tongued, because behind every deceitful tongue is a deceitful mind. So you can't have a person serving in close ministry to people like that. Not only that, he says they cannot be addicted to wine, but we could just put here any intoxicating substance. It's not a prohibition from drinking alcohol, but it's a stern warning regarding its dangers. Just imagine someone who gets pulled over by the police and they're the legal limit, they're not meeting it. Maybe they're not that drunk, 
But still, it's enough that they're in trouble. See, that kind of person loses credibility. It's not a prohibition, but Paul's warning is, this can be dangerous to your integrity. You must have self-control in this area. And not just alcohol, any type of substance. He goes on to say that they cannot be fond of sordid gain. Okay? And I think about Judas, who it says he, he had the money bag, but what was in his heart, you know, it, it drove him to stick his hand in the bag and take money out for himself. The Bible talks about that. We don't want this type of person. Um, there must be no hint of financial dishonesty or questionable practices. I mean, here's the reality. When people give of their money to God's ministries, they must trust those ministries. If you ever lose credibility in that area, it's significantly damaging to the work of God in that ministry. If people can't trust, goes on to say that <clears throat> they must hold to their faith in Christ with a clear conscience. And in this context, Paul is referring to the gospel of Christ and the news of salvation through him. This person must be confident in what he believes, unwavering in their salvation and trusting the gospel work in their life. Now, there's two others in the list. Um, one is they must be a one-woman man. Okay, now... My interpretation is that this has to be a man who's self-controlled with women. Now, I know men who, before they were even saved, were married, and then that marriage ended. Later, they became a Christian, and now they've grown up in the church. They're mature enough to serve as a leader. And sometimes people would say, ah, but they, you know, they remarried. They've had two women in their life. They're not a one-woman man. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about self-control, every other context, self-control of tongue, self-control with money, self-control of family. And this is dealing with a sexual appetite in your life that you have self-control. You are a one woman faithful to your wife, man. If you're not married, Paul was not married. So the application would, there would be that they have the highest of sexual purity, even if single. How can a man stay faithful to Christ if he cannot be faithful to his wife? And so that is a qualification he includes. And then lastly, he says they must be good managers of their household. How can you manage God's house if you can't manage your own house? So you're seeing this list that he gives as um, qualifications. Now that is a, a more flushed out list than Acts chapter 6 prototype, men of good repute. So you're seeing the development of that over time. Now, I have a question here, which is, um, can women serve? Can women serve in this role? Now, Baptist churches are not all alike. You're going to find a Baptist church, and our roots are Baptist, so that's why I'm saying Baptist. But in some churches... Um, Deacons or servant ministers, deacons, they function in a way that's very similar to an elder. They have one pastor and then come alongside them, this group of deacons, 
but they find their plurality there. They have an authority that's very elder-like. And in those Baptist churches, a lot of times, no women serve in that role. The church that I was in before I came here, we had both male and female deacons. We had deacons and deaconesses, if you could say it that way, because we had a plurality of elders. And so we saw this where they came alongside. Now, what I want to do is just give you three reasons as a pastor why I support that women uh, can serve in this role. And if you're here long enough, you'll hear me say it this way. Women can serve in our church in every way that a man can, with the lone exception of the office of an elder. And that's maybe another sermon that I preach on that. But here's three reasons why women can serve in this role. Let's go through this list. I don't think I read it, but let me start in 1 Timothy 3, 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Those are all qualifications I just covered. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now look what it says in verse 11. Their wives... Now, I put up here, the word in verse 11 is women, not wives. Now, this is the one part of the sermon where I have to be kind of a teacher and get a little bit technical because it does deal with the Greek language. The Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek. Now, I got an exercise for you later today. You go to Bible.hub and you look up this verse, James Chapter 3, verse 11, and look at all the translations. Some of the translations will say their wives. Some of the translations will say women. And the reason for that is because the word used there has two possible meanings. It can mean women or it can mean wives. Its first priority meaning is women. When Jesus was on that cross... And his time was coming where he was going to die. It's recorded. He looked down at his mother. And what did he say? He said, woman. Do you remember this? Woman. And he looked at uh, the disciple, John, said, and he, he's saying, take care of my mother. But here's the thing. The word there where it's woman is the same word right here. Now, it would be really odd if Jesus looked at his mother and said, Wife because it's not his wife. Why do we know that the translation is woman and not wife? Because she's not, it's his mom. So he obviously means woman. So context matters when you're looking at it. Okay, I don't want to lose you, but just give me a moment on this because it's important. Secondly, when do we know that it should be wives and not woman? And the answer to that question is that in the Greek language, it will add a possessive pronoun. For example, I try to set um, Wednesday night is youth group, and that's a date date night for my wife and I. And we we try to you know build our, continue to build our relationship. We love each other. We had a great date this week, and there was one morning I woke up and I rolled over in bed and I just grabbed my because I was thinking how much I love my wife and I just pulled her into my arms like this, and I whispered in her. I said, "Thank you for being my." wife. I could even say, thank you for being my woman, but the context would mean, still be the same, would it not? The fact that I said my gives a context to the meaning of the word. See that? 
It would be really odd if I rolled over, grabbed my arm, pull, pulled my missy into my arms and said, thank you for being woman. So the possessive pronoun matters. Now here's the thing. In, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, Paul does not use a possessive pronoun. If you study the Greek language and you read it in the Greek language, there's no possessive pronoun. And so, to me, the context here, why does it have a possessive pronoun? Because some of the translators thought he means wise and they put it in there. But the reality is, it's not there. And so, default is first priority, it means woman. So, that's one reason. And then, I'm going to give you two more. There are no qualifications given for elder wives. I think it's rather strange that the, the spiritual leaders of the church, men, and he gives qualifications, but no qualifications for their wives. When we come over here and it's the servant ministers, men, but your wives got to meet qualifications too. It doesn't make sense. And to me, the answer is because it's women. Men and women can both serve in the role of deacon, deaconess, or servant minister, as I like to, to use, use it. And the third reason is it helps define the true meaning of servant minister. I mean, to come over here and say with my bow tie, hey, I'm so glad to meet you. I want to greet you. I want to get to know you. What are your needs? I'm going to go over here and try to collect some needs and bring it back over here to help meet your needs. And the person says, you can't do that. You're a woman. That doesn't make sense. Both can do it. And in Scripture, you see them working side by side. Oftentimes, men and women as servant ministers, husbands and wives, are working together to minister to the body of Christ. One of my examples that were in the first service is Chris and Manny Lujan. Both servant ministers in my mind. And what they do in their small group... In every way, both of them, they're working together on all the people in their small group to get to know them, to know what their needs are, to serve and minister to them. So we see that. Now, <clears throat> look what it says. Let deacons each... Oh, let me back up verse 11. So let's, let's, let's say it this way, differently. Because here in the ESV, their wives... Let's say women likewise must be, and now here's a list for them. Do we have the women's list? Can women serve? Yes. There's four things that he gives them. Now there's that dignified, which we kind of covered uh, with the um, men, but just to reiterate again, it's, it understands the seriousness of life and to not make light of serious circumstances. You must have that quality as a woman to serve in this role. Secondly, it says not malicious gossips or slanderers. Now, I think it's interesting that to the men, the emphasis is don't be liars. Don't be double-tongued. But to the women, it says don't be gossips. Now, why is that? And one writer said because men are more prone to withhold truth. They don't want to tell you all the truth. They want to make themselves look good. They're, and so they withhold truth. Over here, women tell too much truth. Now, that doesn't mean that a man cannot also gossip, or that a woman cannot also lie. He's generalizing, but in any event, that's what he includes in the list. And the reality is both of them mean you must be self-controlled with your tongue. Thirdly, he says temperate. And I just have to read this because it says there's no English word 
that is completely satisfactory for rendering the Greek word here, nephalios, for temperate. But what it means, it referring to mental and emotional sobriety. Now, sobriety, if you think of it in the terms of alcohol, is you've taken alcohol and you're not, you're not totally in control. So here what it's talking about is mentally and emotionally and the way that you interact, you have a self-control. You don't get worked up emotionally and begin to react emotionally in those situations of ministry. And that's what he says about women who serve in this role. Speech, character, conduct, and even, you could include, usage of alcohol or other substances. They must have self-control, temperate. They must be faithful in all things. I think this is immensely fascinating. It includes this on the woman's list because I think about my wife in this one. Because a woman can get pulled into so many things. You do not know how much my wife does. Serving in our house, for one, five kids, raising, raising and growing them up. But she coaches now. She is involved in things of our church. She has close relationships. There's a whole list of things. She's a wife. When we got married, I said, listen, I mean, the church isn't hiring you. The church is hiring me. When we go forward in life, I need you to be a support for me. And I need you to help me in the home. Now, she at times has worked, at times she hasn't worked. But here's the thing. What he means here is faithful in all things means this, that you cannot allow yourself as a woman to get pulled so far into too many things that you're not faithful at the, the primary calling that you have, which I would say, number one, if you're a wife, is your husband. Number two, if you're a mother, if children, a mother. That you must be faithful in all things. You can't be so involved in some organization over here that you're not good at these things. Do you see that? And he says, Wife, can you help me? <laughs> so he says, these are the four that he puts on the list for women uh, servant ministers. Now, um, Pastor, why are you preaching on this? You might say that. <clears throat> well, I'm revisiting an old office. See, something happened. You know what it was? Well, first of all, last week we preached on James 1.27, didn't we? And what did I emphasize there? Pure religion, religion being faith that follows Jesus Christ, pure religion is one that visits orphans and what? Widows. See that? For 10 years I've been emphasizing James 27, leveraging it towards orphans and foster care, and God's used that to call people forward to meet that ministry. And I've been convicted on that because I don't use it to emphasize another area of ministry within our church. Widows were being neglected for distribution in Acts 6. But what has happened here is I got a message that one of the older ladies in our church, Wanda, who's in her 90s, She's been a missionary. Now she's retired. Her house was severely damaged by Maywar. 
enough that they could still live in it. But the message that came to me was there's an odor coming out of the house. It's strong enough. I don't know how they're living in it. And I'm just going to tell you, I, we dispatched someone. Can you go see? And they went and they sent back pictures and messages. This is really bad. There's black mold under the tiles. We had to replace nine doors that had become brittle. Cockroaches. Like, how were they living in that? It was really, and I'm just going to tell you that there was a moment where I just felt guilty as a pastor. And that comes back to that 150s kind of a limit, you know, maybe 200, but it's very hard to stay on top of everyone's condition and situation of life. And coupled with that, here's what I would tell you. Pre-COVID, we were really working at building the servant ministers within our church. And just for one reason or another, after COVID, it has uh, dilapidated. It has. And we need to come back to that. So there's a way in which I'm saying on the slide, we're, we're, we're not creating a new role, a new office, but I'm revisiting it because we need it. If we don't have it in our church, we won't grow as a church. Quick response. The quick response for me, it's teaching on, <coughs> teaching on it right now bringing public attention to it, and the need to revitalize this very important ministry within our church. There will be a more formalized response, a public recognition. I, my hope is that down the road, we're going to put more than seven, but we're going to put up here a, a, a larger group within our church who is going to Come forward to meet this need, to fill this role. I need to teach on it. We need to seek within our congregation people who, did you see the qualifications? Okay? And then recognize them. And so what I'm saying is, if you're, if you're sitting there, maybe God's calling you to it. Or maybe, like in Acts 6, he said, go find, maybe you know someone. Maybe you know someone who has the qualifications, but you're also seeing them do ministry. You're seeing them, really a lot of what they're doing already is serving and ministering within our church. And we need to come together and be able to bring alongside the elders and pastors of the church another group necessary for the growth of the church. Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, when the whole body works together, and functions in the way that it's designed, the body grows. That's why I said earlier, it's like if you don't have it, it's like missing some organs. It's problematic for the health of your body. God designed those organs to be in there to, to work as part of a system to bring health and life to you. In our church, God's church, God Paul says in that Ephesians, <coughs> excuse me, as well, he says that God gives pastors, teachers, evangelists to the church to train up the people of the church to do the ministry of the church. He puts side by side the pastors, teachers, evangelists of the church with ministers of the church. So they work together in close relationship to serve the body of Christ. And that's what's kind of led me to this. I knew that we were going to preach on Orphan Sunday. And then this summer, Maywar, you know, it. I think there was seven weeks where I chainsawed and tried to clear out wood, and we overlooked Wanda. And coming into this fall, 
I began to think, when I preach James 1.27, and we say, a pure religion does not overlook orphans. It visits them. Remember, that's not have a donut with them. That's you have a plan for how you're going to help meet their needs. But not just orphans, but also widows. And really what the Bible is saying is that we are aware of what might be the marginalized, but also those who have needs and they struggle to help meet their needs. Orphans struggle to meet their needs. A widow like Wanda, she cannot do the things that that need to be done. And our church needs to be better at, starting with its leaders. I'm the first at cultivating within our church an understanding of servant ministers, seeking them out, organizing them, and recognizing them. And that really is part of the reward. You know, he finishes 1 Timothy. He says, for those who serve well as deacons, by the way, that word that I just said deacons, it's gender neutral like nurse. A nurse you might assume is a woman, but it could be a man. And right here it says, deacons, for those who serve well, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The way in which when you serve in that role, you grow in your confidence of your own faith and you have good standing within the congregation, God's church. But we also have a better testimony to the larger public. That is a church that visits orphans and widows, has a plan for them. Father, thank you for your word, for Paul's teaching. I thank you for recording some of the growth problems, because I'm sure that wasn't the only one that the early church had, so that we can learn from it. It's a a model. Um, It's not policy, but it is It's a model. It's a prototype. We see Paul's more clear teaching later on. May we be guided by that. I pray that you would help raise up within our church servant ministers, men and women who will come alongside the pastors and elders that can help meet the needs. And remember the words of of Acts 6. It's not right. If we expect the pastors and elders to do all the waiting on tables, the body of Christ will not grow. There will be members that are robbed from gaining confidence because part of your design is they gain confidence in their own faith, growing into maturity by serving in that role. So I just pray that you would grow it up in our church and we would give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand as we'll finish. We worship together.